Father, we've sung of your unending love and we've sung of your amazing grace. Father, I pray that those would not just be words um, from a song. I pray that they would not be uh, just words that cascade from our lips. Father, I pray that that would be the reality of our hearts. It would be the reality of our life that we have experienced amazing grace and that we understand what it is that your love uh, is amazing and unending and for us. Father, I pray uh, in this place that we would rejoice that you have showed us grace and love in Jesus Christ. Father, we're so grateful that you have sent him into uh, this earth to become a man, to become uh, fully human, just like we are fully human, and yet to be without sin. Father, we're grateful for his life, for his teaching, for his ministry, uh, for his humility and his his humanity. And we're grateful, Father, that he did not love uh, um, heaven enough uh, that he would stay there, but he came down, that he humbled himself, and that he humbled himself even to the point of death on the day that God died. And on the day, three days later, when he was resurrected, he uh, beat death, he overcame sin, he overcame Satan, and he overcame death. So that those who have placed our faith in him will do the same one day. Thank you for your grace that it is unearned, unmerited. And Father, we could not do enough, but you show us that. And you ask simply that we receive it by faith, simply that we place our trust in your son and we become new creatures. Spirit, we're grateful for your work in this place and in our lives. We're grateful that you make us new people, that you uh, renew and regenerate our hearts and you give us new desires and new passions and that you make us to be born again. Father, we're grateful for your love and for your grace. Father, we pray now um, that you would send your spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would open up our, high, our eyes, open up our ears, help us to see, help us to hear, help us to have, to have soft hearts. I pray in particular, Father, as we continue to talk about area, an area that is uh, so important in so many of our lives, uh, the area of relationships and dating and marriage. Father, I pray that you would speak uh, directly to these sensitive and overwhelmingly important areas in our life. We're so grateful that you have given us revelation on every aspect of our life, including this one. And so I pray that you would help us to heed it, that you would prepare us to have uh, healthy marriages for those who are not married, that you would help us to have good and holy and godly marriages for those of us who are. Father, we ask for your presence, and we ask for your peace, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right, children, feel free to go ahead and head off to Children's Church. I think that Miss Penny is waiting for you. And so as the kids are heading off to Children's Church, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to a book called The Song of Solomon. It may be called The Song of Songs in your Bible. I think this is probably week three of our series called The Art of Marriage. And we have been talking about issues of dating and uh, love and romance and marriage, and we will continue to do so for a few weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon. It's right uh, pretty close to smack dab in the middle of your Bible. It uh, comes after the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe. And so if you find Ecclesiastes, you're close. Uh, it is uh, before Isaiah. And so right smack dab in the center of your Bible is the book of uh, the Song of Solomon. If you don't have your text, uh, that's certainly okay. The text should be on the screen. Uh, just by way of reminder as to where have we have been and where we are going, 
um, if we can change slides. Um, well, the first week, we saw the art of attraction. And so we saw how is it that a godly young woman and a godly young man attract uh, to one another? How are they attracted to one another? What should you be looking for in a mate? Uh, last week, um, we saw part one of the art of dating. And this week, we will see uh, kind of part two of the art of dating. I've actually called it the art of engagement because I think we see their relationship um, progressing on into what I would consider an engagement kind of period. And so this is where, we're, where we have been, the art of attraction. We've seen this couple go on a date last week. And just for a preview, this is where we'll, we will be going uh, next Sunday. We will be talking about the art of intimacy. We will see uh, the, Solomon and his bride's wedding. And then we will get an in-depth look on their wedding night. And so get ready uh, for that. It should be a lot of fun. And uh, from there on, we'll see the art of conflict. That is, after you are married, uh, there will be conflict. How do you handle conflict in marriage? The art of deepening. How do you continue to grow in love and romance? And finally, the art of faithfulness. How do you um, stick with it towards uh, the uh, till the end? So... That's where we have been, and this morning, as I said, starting in chapter 2, verse 8, is where we're going to begin the art of engagement. Again, I've called it the art of engagement. Uh, it's not technically uh, engagement in that uh, time period, but I think what we see is that last week, the couple went on a date. This week, I think we see the relationship going to a new level. I think uh, it is a, a time in their relationship in which they are uh, pursuing marriage and on the way towards marriage as if engaged, because next week we will We'll see. Uh, we will see their their wedding. And so this is where we are. And so I want to begin this morning the art of engagement just by sharing briefly with you a bit of uh, my engagement story, our engagement story with Shelly and I, just to get us in, uh, prepared for that kind of uh, conversation. Um, and so the long, uh, the long and short of it is that Shelly and I met and dated and got in, get, gotten married, I think, in maybe a little over a year. And so Shelly and I's uh, relationship happened very, very quickly, um, but I'd like to think that uh, we were mature enough to handle it, and things, uh, I think, obviously, it was good in God's will that we did that. Um, but our engagement period was a little bit... It was good, but it was a little bit different than some. Uh, so just uh, how it happened. Uh, Shelly and I had been talking about getting married for a while, and we had been talking about that. And so the idea of, of marriage was forthcoming. I think we had decided that we were going to get married at that point. But there was a little, there was a little kink. Um, we had looked at several dates. We were thinking initially of a summer wedding. And we, as we thought and prayed about it, we were like, you know what? To heck with that. Let's just get married sooner. And so we planned our wedding for December. We bumped it up by about four or five months. And uh, I think we're both very pleased that we decided to do that. Uh, and so that kind of put our engagement period on a little bit of a fast track. And so I had already purchased a wedding ring or an engagement ring for Shelly. And I was having it made. And it was taking a little bit longer than I had anticipated it taking. And so uh, Shelly goes home, decides to go home to Tulsa one weekend. And as, you know... Uh, almost engaged women do, they begin to think ahead and they begin to think about the wedding. And so her and her mom decided to go uh, wedding dress shopping uh, before we were actually engaged. And so they were just, you know, I think initially just doing some scanning, you know, just kind of seeing what's out there. And of course, we're just looking, turns into, I found my wedding dress. And so I get a text message in Dallas uh, saying something to the effect of, I have found a dress that I like. Are you sure you're going to propose? <laughs> and I, I think my reply was something to the effect of, are you kidding? Yes. 
get the dress. And um, and so I'm sure that was a bit of an awkward predicament for my wife, uh, purchasing a wedding dress without having an engagement ring on her finger. And uh, the funny side story to that is that uh, Shelly told me that her mom said, well, honey, here's the deal. We'll go ahead and, and we can get this dress. And if it doesn't work out, well, there, will, there always will be someone else. <laughs> And Shelly's like, I'm not going to use this dress if he, if he backs out on me. Well, needless to say, I didn't back out on her and things went smoothly. And so, and so then there's the predicament of uh, we, she has a, an engagement, a wedding dress. We have booked the church because we had to get it soon. And literally, that was like the only weekend they could do it in December. And so, you know, God's hand was upon it. And so we have a wedding dress. We have uh, uh, booked a church. And we are not formally engaged. <laughs> and I am huffing, I'm hustling and pushing the person who is making this ring to get it done. Long story short, we get the ring. And then the predicament becomes, well, she knows that I'm going to propose. So how do I do this in a way that would be at least somewhat memorable? You know, how do I do this and make it fun and, and exciting and, and a surprise when she has her wedding dress in her closet. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it just so happens that she decided to go home uh, one weekend, and I had the brilliant idea that that Friday the wedding ring was going to be available, and I was going to pick it up, and I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fly to Tulsa. I'm going to surprise her at her house, and I'm going to concoct a scheme with her family. They worked, worked beautifully to surprise her and propose to her that night. And so I did. I got a plane ticket. Literally, I went, I got the ring, and I went straight to the airport, hopped on a plane, one-way ticket to Tulsa. Uh, her dad met us, met me at the airport to pick me up. They were out on a dinner together, and her dad's like, oh, I forgot. I really needed to do something in my office. I'm going to go. And she totally bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And so her mom's like, after dinner, let's go get some Starbucks, you know, let's, because they were giving me time to set up in, in the house. And Shelly's like, oh, okay, I guess so, whatever you want. And so long story short, she shows up, and she uh, walks in the house, and they're like, Shelly, why don't, why don't you go in? You know, why don't you go check something? I don't know. They, they prodded her to go in first, and uh, as she walked in, she found a series of letters um, that I had written to her with flowers strewn, uh, a, a little pathway into her bedroom to where she found me waiting with her, uh, waiting for her, and uh, she read the letters. And I think, it, I think at first you were, what did you say? At first I was like, Dad, is there a séance going on in our house? <laughs> What's going on? There's candles and flowers. <laughs> but I think she picked up on it pretty quickly, and so um, she found me there, and I sang to her, and we, she said yes. So, yay. All right. <clears throat> and we're married. All right. So this is my engagement story. Uh, what we have this morning is what I would call uh, an engagement period. What we're going to see, I think, is five characteristics, five characteristics of how a dating relationship that is heading towards marriage, maybe a dating relationship that is about to be engaged, this period to where the couple is serious, they're more and more involved with one another, more and more time with one another, seriously considering marriage, a dating relationship heading towards marriage, what is that supposed to look like? Well, I think what we find out is that it looks like five things, more than that, but five things in the Song of Solomon. And the first one is found in verses 8 through 13. And what we see is that this time period, this engagement period, should be what I would call delightful. 
It should be delightful, verses 8 through 13. Uh, again, the text picks up, and the wo- woman begins, and again, they are kind of going on a date. Last week, they, we saw them dating in what I believe to be one of Solomon's vineyards. They're on a date, and they're outside in a vineyard. The scene now shifts to her home, and Solomon is described here by the woman, in her own words, as uh, coming uh, over the hills and coming uh, down to her house. And so he is coming to pick her up on what I think is going to be a lovely countryside stroll out in the country by her home. And so she, be, she describes him coming to her home to pick her up, starting in verse 8. And it reads like this. She says this, The voice of my beloved, she hears his voice in the distance. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. And so the picture is this. He is coming from a distance to see her, and he is like a young gazelle or a young stag. He is excited. He is. He anticipates seeing her. There is a freshness to their uh, relationship. He cannot wait to get to her. And she describes him uh, coming down the mountainside uh, on the path to her house as a, as a gazelle or a stag. And then she describes him getting closer and closer and closer to her house. Notice what she says. He's standing behind our wall. He's gazing through the windows. He's looking through the lattice. And so he is looking for her. He cannot wait to see her. Now, uh, guys, be careful not to take this too literally because it might get you thrown in jail. <laughs> If you get what I'm saying, you may not want to be looking through windows and those kind of things. But, but the image is that he, he can't wait to see her. He's looking all around. Where is this lovely woman? And so he is going to pick her up and they're going to take a walk in the country. I think their relationship has developed. And so then, uh, starting in verse 10, the woman speaks again and she talks about what he has said to her. He's coming. He's coming to pick her up. And what does he say? What does he say? Before we read verses 10 through 13, I want to ask this question, and I think it should be obvious. As Solomon speaks to, to kind of woo her out, if you will, he describes the season of the year. It's a particular season of the year outside, but not only is it a particular season of the year outside, it's a particular season, season, if you will, in their relationship. And so how does he describe what is outside and how does he describe what is inside their relationship? Verse 10. My beloved speaks and says to me. So Solomon says this. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So he wants him, her to come with him. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So the question is, what season outside is it? 
springtime, right? It's springtime. It's springtime outside, and subsequently, it is not only springtime outside, but I think he uses this image to describe their relationship. It's delightful. It's spring-like. He says it's full of freshness. It's full of new life. It's full of beauty. It's very lovely. It's new. It's fresh. And isn't that how a love that is growing, that is new and on the way towards marriage, isn't that how relationships are supposed to be. It's like spring. I mean, don't you know that that's when people tend to, you know, begin to ache for a relationship during spring. It's springtime. Things are fresh. Flowers are blooming. Birds are singing. It's the season of love. And he describes their relationship as delightful. It's, it's like spring. Um, when Shelly and I went away on our vacation a few, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, when we went, spring was almost here, but it had not hit. Uh, the grass was getting greener. Uh, the leaves, and uh, excuse me, the plants outside of our front yard were beginning to look like there might be something happening. And we go off for about six or seven days. And when we get back home, lo and behold... Boom. Spring had come. We had beautiful leaves. Our roses were beginning to bud. Our plants shot up by, uh, by about a foot. And spring had come. And this is how he describes their relationship. And so I want to begin thinking applicationally. Uh, for those of you who uh, are in or will be in this kind of relationship, you've been dating for a while, you're thinking seriously about marriage, maybe you're engaged already. I think this happens pretty naturally. I think there is a freshness, there is a joy, there is an anticipation that you have as you look forward to being married. That's not something that needs to be taught most of the time. But my encouragement to you is that if you're in that kind of a relationship and you're thinking about marriage, if you're relationship is not spring-like, if it's not delightful, if you can't use this, these kind of words, if it's not easy and smooth and good and holy, if there's a lot of conflict, you know, you may want to consider what you're l- looking into. But for those of us who are married, I think there's an application to this too. Uh, and the applicational challenge is this. How would you, what season would you use to describe your current marriage? Obviously, there are four seasons. Would it be described as spring-like? Would it be described as fresh, as exciting, as invigorating, as new, as being full of anticipation for one another? Or would you consider it maybe more like the winter? Cold, harsh, bitter, biting, long, unrelenting? How would you describe your marriage? Obviously, this couple is not quite married yet, but what we see is that the period of of this kind of fresh, delightful kind of spring-like love obviously is not merely designed just to be for engaged people. It's meant to be continued on through marriage. Um, Another question is, do you anticipate being with one another like Solomon anticipating being with his bride? Um, She describes him literally as running to see her. He's running over the mountains to see her. There's that kind of anticipation of being with uh, with your partner. And so is there that kind of anticipation in your marriage? Shelley just happened to hear as we listened to the radio in the morning this week, and maybe you happened to be on the station that we were on and, and hear this as well. <clears throat> but she, she heard an interesting statistic. And uh, that statistic is that uh, there was a recent poll uh, that essentially said uh, they, they polled spouses who were off on business or, uh, you know, business most, uh, a lot of the time. And they said, 
Out of, out of the people polled, how many miss the family pet more than they miss their spouse? <laughs> so what do you miss more, your pet or your spouse? Anybody want to guess what percentage missed the family pet more than their spouse? 30%. 30% said that they missed uh, uh, Fluffy, <laughs> the cat, or, or you know, Fufu, the dog, more than they missed being with their spouse when away on business. Um, and that struck us as pretty interesting because what we see here is that a healthy marriage, there is a desire to be with one another. And so in verses 8 through 3, we've seen the first characteristic of this time of uh, this engagement period. It's, it's delightful. It's delightful. It's spring like. Moving on in verse 14, not only is there a delightfulness, but there is what I would call a deepening of trust. There is a deepening of trust between the uh, uh, Solomon and his and his bride to be. Verse 14. We've seen uh, that he has uh, requested that she come on him with a wa- on a walk. Come with me. It's spring. I feel like our relationship is spring-like, and it's spring-like outside. Let's go on a walk. And then in verse 14, uh, he speaks to her. And so Solomon now proper is speaking. And what he does is he assures her that she can trust him. He says, you can trust me. You may have hesitations. In fact, we're going to see that she has hesitations. She's hesitant about going with him for some reason. And so the picture is that he is so excited. He's running. He gets to her house. He's like, come with me. It's beautiful outside. I feel like our relationship is beautiful inside. Come with me. And she's hesitant. There's something not exactly right. There's some issue that's going on. And so he sees this and he notices this. And then he addresses her in in verse 14. And he says, you can trust me. Let's read this together. Verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And so the image is this. He arrives at her place and there is a sense of hesitation. There is something not right and he notices this immediately. And he likens her to a dove. Notice the image. He says, oh my dove, that is in the cleft of the rock in the crannies of the cliff. Now what he's describing there is a particular type of dove and I know the name, but I, I don't recall it. Some particular kind of dove that in Israel, when they were frightened, when they were scared, when they were in danger, what they would do is they would fly away to the clefts and the crannies of the rock. They would find places in between the rocks to hide from danger. And so he is likening her to a dove that has been scared off, that has fluttered away, that is feeling endangered in some way. And he says, you're in the rock, you're in the cleft. But what you need to do is come out. You need to come out. Notice what he says. Let me see your face. Come on out. Let me hear your voice. Come on out. I want to see your face because it's lovely. I want to hear your voice because it's sweet. And so he likens her to a dove. She has hesitations. There's something wrong. It's going to be addressed here in a little bit in verse 15. But what we see here is that he is telling her, you can trust me. You may feel in danger. You may feel there's something wrong. If there's an issue in our relationship, you can trust me with it. Come on out. Come on out. There is a deepening of trust. He says, 
I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to treat you well. I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not going to mistreat you. I will not disrespect you. I will not take advantage of you. You can trust me. Come on out of the cliff. And so we've seen that their relationship is delightful, but we also see that there is a deepening of trust. And so if you are single and in a dating relationship, maybe one that has continued on for some time, what you need to see and what should happen in a good, healthy, biblical dating relationship that is heading towards marriage is that there should be a deepening of trust. There should be a sense that you trust that person more than when you first begin to date because you've seen them in action. You have spent time with them. You trust their character more. You trust their godliness more. You trust their judgment more. You trust that they will not hurt you or harm you or take advantage of you and that they have your good in mind. And so if you are in that kind of a relationship, heading towards possibly marriage, there should be a deepening of trust. She should trust you. You should trust her. You should trust her that she's going to be faithful to you, that she's going to respect you, that she's not going to speak uh, ill of you in public. And she should trust him that he's not going to take advantage of her. He's not going to mistreat her. He's not going to speak ill to her. He's not going to touch her in an inappropriate way. There should be a deepening of trust. And Solomon says, I think that our relationship is delightful. It's like spring. But apparently there's some issue. Trust me. (laughs) Trust me. In verse 14. So we've seen it's delightful. There's a deepening of trust. And then we get, I believe, to the issue in verse 15. She is hesitant. She needs to be coaxed out of the cranny like a dove. And he says, you can trust me. Come on out. And in verse 15, what we see is the woman then responds. He says, you're like a dove in a cranny. Come on out. And she then responds to him in verse 15. And in verse 15, essentially what she does is she identifies, I think, why she is hesitant. She identifies why she is like a dove in the cranny. Notice what she says. Read it with me in verse 15. She says to Solomon, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Notice what she says then, for our vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom, for our vineyards are in blossom. At first take, you might say, what is she talking about? <laughs> what foxes, vineyards, what, you know, what, what is this all about? She's speaking very poetically and she's responding to his, uh, his assertion that you can trust me. And what she's saying is there is there's an issue. She's using an image, a common image in that day. Vineyards uh, in Israel were very, very significant, very important, uh, a big agricultural crop. And what you wanted to do if you had a vineyard is you wanted to protect it from anything that could do damage to the vineyard, like animals, like little foxes. Some translations might say jackals. We're going to go with foxes. Some kind of animal that can get into the vineyard and ruin the vineyard. What the little foxes would do, I have read, is that when there were buds, uh, when the grapes were about to uh, come forth, they were on the vine and they were in a bud type thing, the little foxes would love to come and to eat the buds and ruin the fruit of the vineyard. So do you understand now what she is saying? She is likening her relationship to him to a vineyard. Do you see that? She says, our relationship is like a vineyard. And as it grows, as there's the right ingredients, as there's sun and light and uh, you know, fertilizer or whatever they would use, as long when there's good ingredients, love and trust and respect and holiness, what happens in a, in a relationship? It grows. It should bring forth fruit. 
It should be fruitful. And what she's saying is, there are some issues that we have, Solomon, that could ruin our vineyard. And she calls those potential conflicts, those potential issues, those potential relationship ruiners, if you will, foxes. She says, catch the foxes for us. So let's notice four things here about detecting potential conflicts. It should be delightful. There should be a deepening of trust. But also in this stage, you should begin to detect potential conflicts because you're about to get married (laughs) and there will be conflicts. But you should begin to detect them. Now, a couple things. First of all, notice what she says. It takes a joint commitment to catch the foxes. Notice what she says. Catch the foxes for what? What word? Tell me. Thank you. Us. Catch the foxes for us. What she does not say is you go catch your foxes. (laughs) And what she does not say is I will go catch my foxes. Because they individually have foxes, potential conflicts, potential character defects that they bring into the relationship. But it's not his fox and it's not her fox. It's what? It's our foxes. They take mutual responsibility and joint commitment to deal with the foxes in the vineyard. Oftentimes, when couples are having issues, it becomes, well, that's your fox. You go deal with it. And if I have a fox, I'll deal with it. But they begin to think individually and not as one. It's our foxes. Secondly, notice whose job it is to take the initiative to catch the fox. It's the woman speaking, and what does she say? She's speaking to Solomon, and she says, catch the foxes, catch the foxes. And so what I think we see here is that while it takes a joint commitment to catch the foxes, she's imploring Solomon to take the lead in catching the foxes in their relationship, which I think fits with the biblical prescription of what a husband-to-be should do. Third, notice that not only does she say, it's our foxes, but you take the lead, but notice she says, she says uh, that there are potential po- foxes before them and that who, who's the one that notices it? This is what I'm trying to get at. Who brings it up? She does. <laughs> she brings it up first. He's on his way. He thinks things are fine. They're going to go on a stroll. It's beautiful. Our relationship is spring-like. That's what he thinks. But what does she think? She thinks that there are foxes, right? And I think probably, you're laughing because you know this to be true in experience, most of the time if there's a fox in your relationship, the woman is going to see it and notice it first. Most of the time. And the husbands are saying in their hearts, amen, that's right. (laughs) And the women are saying, yes, that's very true. I wish you would listen to me. Husbands, if she brings up a fox, don't call her dumb, don't disregard it, don't say that's not correct. Listen, because it's a fox, okay? To me as well. So not only that, it's his job, she notices it. And this may be a really simplistic observation, but I think it's an important one. What does she say must be done to the foxes? They need to be caught, right? Pretty simple, they need to be caught, or what will happen to their vineyard? It will be ruined. See that? It will be ruined. And the point that I'm wanting to make here is that the foxes that are in the vineyard can't be allowed to play, (laughs) They can't be allowed free reign. They can't be allowed to go and eat whatever buds they want at whatever time. They have to be dealt with. You can't sweep a fox under the rug and anticipate that it will die. It will not die under the rug. It will grow bigger. And when the rug is pulled out from underneath, the fox will be even bigger than when it entered your vineyard. 
You know what I'm talking about? You have to deal with foxes. And I'm talking about couples that are dating and looking towards marriage. And those of us who are married, we have to catch the foxes. We're going to camp here for a little bit because I think this is real uh, applicable and important. Um, first of all, I want, to, I want to address those of you who are single. Uh, single and dating or maybe single and not dating. Uh, but particularly those of you who are single and not dating, um, this does apply to you. Uh, I remember the days when I uh, was single and there were many of them. <laughs> many days when I was single and I would think, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to find someone? All of these things that we struggle with when you're single. Um, and I thought, well, I don't need to read about marriage. I don't need to think about those things. It just doesn't apply to me until I meet that person. And then I'll start thinking about them. But that's not the way it works because the truth is that you you as a single person need to begin to identify the foxes in your personal life now because they will show up in the vineyard of your relationship later. You see what I'm saying? You bring foxes into your relationship. Some of us bring a lot of foxes into our marriage. Some of us bring very few foxes into our relationship, but we all are damaged goods when we get married. There's no perfect husband or wife. And you need to begin to think, what what are the things that could negatively affect my marriage when I get married? Is it hard for me to forgive people? That's going to be a big fox in your marriage. Is it hard for you to admit that you are wrong? Because if it is, it's going to be a huge fox in your marriage. Do you have a lack of self-control? Maybe with your spending, you're racking up a ton of debt. I guarantee that that will show up in your marriage as a fox. Maybe you're not involved with church. You're like, oh, I'll do that when I get married. I'll get serious about Jesus when I'm married. It's not like you automatically become mature and committed to the church in Christ when you get married. <laughs> that doesn't happen that way. You begin to do that when you are single. So, single folks, you are now currently uh, growing foxes. Identify them, kill them, catch them now, because eventually when you go into marriage, you will discover that you have foxes. My hope is that you will bring less foxes to the marriage as opposed to more. When Shelly and I got married, I'll just share one. Um, I had a lot of foxes, uh, certainly probably more than my wife did. Um, one of the foxes that I brought to our marriage was a uh, lack of ability to handle money well. I, I didn't handle money well. Um, I always had enough to pay my bills, and I paid for my bills, and I didn't have debt or anything, but I just wasn't very skilled at it. I, I never knew what a budget was. I had never balanced a checkbook, checkbook before in my life. Hey, it's online. It does it for you, right? That's what I thought. And, uh, and, and I would just kind of spend. I'd be like, okay, this is how much I have in the bank, so I'm going to spend it. And then next month, I'll get paid again. And, you know, I just didn't, I didn't have any... It was a, it was a, yeah, you're laughing because maybe you know what that's like. That's me. Um, and God sent me an accountant. So. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and that was a big fox, you know. That was a big fox for us. And a huge adjustment going to that kind of lifestyle to what, the budget. What... What's that? <laughs> I think I read about that in one of my accounting books, but I don't know. Um, budget, spending, keeping receipts. Uh, isn't that just paper for burning? I don't know. You know? Uh, and so that was a big fox for us. Um, okay, maybe you're dating, maybe you're married. The foxes can still be the same. And so what you need to do is you need to ask yourself, and you need to ask your partner this too, and it can be a hard conversation, so choose the right time. What are our foxes? 
What are our foxes? I would say, as Shelley and I talked briefly about that, I would say maybe a big fox for us right now is uh, just how we're going to raise our son. You know, decisions that are made in that. Uh, how are we going to discipline him? What are we going to do? Decisions uh, revolving around child rearing. That could be a fox for us. I was going to say, if we ever have some spats, most likely it's, it's going to be over that. And so that we need to identify that that's a fox in our, in our vineyard. Okay, here are a list of several potential foxes. Um, I've gleaned many of them from Mark Driscoll up in Seattle. Um, you can listen to his sermon on this text, and he, ha- he goes into much more detail than I will. But he has much more experience than I do on this issue, and so I've, uh, I've uh, taken a few of his foxes, and so I want to share them with you. Um, and I've, I've added a few of my own, too. First fox in marriage, or marriage-to-be, is money. We've ta- I've alluded to this already, but things like the use of credit cards, going into debt, how much debt, what will we go into debt for, who's going to keep the books, is one of you a spender, one of you a saver, that's how Shelley and I are, can be a fox, I'm a spender, she's a saver, use of budgets, all of these money issues, and especially when financially things are tight, someone loses a job, money is always a huge fox in marriage. Secondly, sex, sex can be a big fox in marriage. We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm just going to let it be. Third, but you know what I mean if you know what I mean. Raising of children. We've talked about this already. Raising of children. How will you discipline them? How much freedom will you give them? What kind of activities are you going to let them do? How many activities are you going to let them do? At the same time, what will take precedent? Will it take precedent over church and school and family time? All of these issues. Raising of children. What about the fox of extended family? Okay, here's the deal. You don't nudge your spouse here. You don't, <laughs> you don't talk about how bad their mama-in-law is or anything like that. But extended family, as we all know, can be a fox. It can be a fox. Where are we going to spend holidays? How much time are we going to spend with them? How much access will grandma and grandpa have? How much access to our, to our lives will they have? How much advice Will we let them give us? How much time can they spend with our kids? Do we have to be at every holiday? Do we have to be at uh, Thanksgiving and Easter and Kwanzaa and all of those things? You know, do you have to be at every holiday, you know, with, with all of your family? All of these issues. All of these issues, extended family. I heard a story from a young couple of uh, about two years that we had, a good friend of mine, he's a former student, and they talked about how they just have a two-month-old baby and how, they, how their parents, both sets of parents are loving and generous and kind and godly people, but how somehow the bringing of the baby into the family brings out a different side in their family so that they each want their time with the baby. And literally, they said that what they had to do was mark on their calendars and show that they, and literally, they spent the equal amount of days in like a calendar, like three months or a year, half a year or something, equal amount of days visiting each family, the exact same, to appease both sets of parents. Wow. <laughs> he's a better man than I. Um, extended family, right? Uh, other, other foxes here. How we deal with conflict. Conflict resolution. Each of us have different ways of dealing with conflict. Some are healthy, some are not. And so if we have different ways of dealing with conflict, that can be a big fox. If one of you forgives easily and quickly, if one of you holds on to things a little bit more and doesn't quickly forgive. Uh, It takes a little long to process. That can be a fox. If one of you yells and the other one retreats, that can be an issue because one's yelling and the other's walking and you don't get anywhere, do you? Um, 
things like engaging versus withdrawal. Some of you, uh, some of us, we want to engage a conflict, a potential issue, and deal with it. Others will withdraw and shy away from conflict. And so how we deal with conflict in our marriages and marriages to be can be a very big fox. Uh, personality differences also fit into that category. Maybe one of you is shy, one of you is extroverted, and so you want to be away from people to revitalize, and the other one needs to be with people to revitalize. And when you have those two people together in the same household, you know, you might have a little fox. Um, also, one of you may be an optimist, one of you may, may be a pessimist. Uh, my wife and I are a little bit like this. I'm more of the optimist. I'm like, the sun's going to shine today and we're going to win the lottery. Yay! <laughs> Shelly's like, it's raining outside and, you know, you haven't bought a ticket. <laughs> She's a realist. I'm a dreamer. And so, you know, that can be a, a personality. That could be a little, a little fox. Um, Attitudes, certain attitudes that we have in marriage, and there's many attitudes. We won't go into too many, uh, but a few that uh, that can be particularly bad foxes is the uh, the attitude of criticism, and so how you relate to your spouse. Uh, statements like, "You always do this," "You are always that," "You are a fill in the blank with a dirty word," <laughs> "I think that you are blank." Those kind of statements typically become foxes in relationships. Not only that, but uh, having contempt. Not only uh, criticism, but contempt. Contempt is like, you talk to me and I roll my eyes and walk away. <laughs> uh, contempt is, uh, your wife is talking to you and you're watching TV and you ignore her. <laughs> that's, that's contempt. Maybe, uh, maybe if you have a particular negative nickname, like you, you dummy or you fool or whatever. I mean, those kind of things can be foxes. Finally, another, another fox is the fox of past pain. And what I mean by that is that we all bring things into relationships and we all bring things into marriages that are painful. We've had painful experiences, whether it's being made fun of as a kid, maybe it's coming from uh, a dysfunctional family, maybe it's a former addiction, maybe you were abused of some sorts, maybe there was infidelity in a former relationship. There's some kind of past pain that you have and you bring that into your Marriage, and it can become a fox. And uh, Mark Driscoll likens it to a, a, bro- a bone that has been broken that, if not set properly, will always not be, uh, it won't be right. And that's how past pains are if, you're, if you don't heal from them. Lost child, lost spouse, all of these things. If you don't heal from them correctly, biblically, healthily, then your bone's going to be broken and you're going to bring that into marriage. So these are just a, a few, a few of the foxes. And so, what are yours? What are your foxes? It should be delightful. There should be a deepening of trust. You need to detect potential conflicts. Fourth, verses 16 through 17. There should be a development of oneness and anticipation. And we'll see this. First, there is a development of oneness, the idea of unity. And then there is a development of anticipation. Read with me verse 16. Development of oneness. She responds and she says this, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Did you catch catch that? My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. What we see here in verse 16, I think, is there is a development of oneness. This should be something that should be true if you are in a dating relationship. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you're heading towards marriage. You should begin to think of your relationship more in the terms of we rather in the terms of me. You know what I mean? You are beginning to be one. You're not one yet, but you will be soon. And so you begin to have this sense of mutual, I would call it mutual belonging. My beloved is mine. 
He is mine, and I am his. And it goes both ways. He is mine, I'm his. We are one together. And she uses a really gentle image. He's a, he grazes among the lilies. It's an image that he's a shepherd, and he's a tender shepherd who takes his flock to graze among the lilies. I think it's just a picture of a, a tender, protective shepherd. And so she says, there may be conflicts, there may be foxes, there may be hesitations, but we are still growing together in oneness. I trust that you will deal with the foxes. I am yours. You are mine. You are a tender shepherd, a loving shepherd. And so if you are single and dating and on the road towards marriage, this should be a characteristic of your relationship. You should begin to think more and more in terms of me and, uh, and excuse me, more and more in terms of we than in terms of me. I think one, uh, for me, there was a progression. There's a progression. But when Shelly and I got engaged, we started to think about these things. Where are we going to live? What car are we going to drive? Uh, how much insurance are we going to get? How are we going to work our bank account? These kind of things. And that, I think, came home, at least initially for me, during the gift registry process. Now, are you familiar with the gift registry process? Some of you are, some of you are not. But what you tip, you, you know, you, you know what happens. You go to Target or wherever you're going to go, and the wife gets the list of all the things that she could, you know, register for, and the husband or the husband to be gets what? He gets the gun. Oh, he gets the gun, which is the best part of it. You get the gun, and so the wife says, "Oh, that looks good." Beep. Hey, do you think this is going to look nice in our our bathroom? Yes, honey. Beep. <laughs> Do you think that this is going to be a great color of, 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 of shade, you know, in our, in our, in our, in our bathroom? Um, yes. Beep. You know, and so, but when you, when you do the gift registry process, you begin to think about you're going to share a bathroom and a bedroom and, you know, towels and all of those things. And you begin to think about us. Now, for those of you who are married, this should obviously be uh, an ongoing reality. Uh, this couple is yet to be one, but you, if you are married, you are one. Uh, biblically, you're one flesh. And so there should continue to be an attitude of we and not me, um, a sense of unity, two people um, doing that. And so I want to ask you and challenge you, if you're married, and challenge me, um, how is that oneness? Is it still we instead of me? Um, or are you becoming, slowly but surely, two people who simply share things like a bedroom and a bathroom and a, and a sink and a toilet and a mailbox? I mean, that's unfortunately what some marriages come to. But the ideal here is that there's a development of oneness. Not only is there a development of oneness, there's a development of anticipation. Okay, this is going to be a bit of a preview for next week. And so the steam level, if you will, uh, is going to be cranked up. Things are going to get a little spicy here. And uh, next week, as we look at the wedding night, it's going to be cranked up even more. And uh, you may be shocked and amazed at what you find in your Bible. Uh, verse 17, we see there is a development of anticipation. This should be true of every engaged couple um, that is thinking about marriage and that cares about uh, the Bible and cares about Jesus and cares about uh, keeping purity and rightness in their relationship. You should you should care about that, and there should be this struggle, this anticipation that even though we are becoming one in more and more areas of life, uh, we are not one physically yet, but we anticipate it. Notice what she says, and she's always the racier one here, by the way, in verse 17. She gives this uh, desire. She shares her desire. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft 
mountains. Your translation may say on the mountains of Bether or Bathar. And so here she expresses her desire, her anticipation that one day when they get married, they will uh, experience physical unity, sexual oneness. Let me explain this a little bit, um, or maybe it's crystal clear to you, but until the day breathes and the shadows flee. What, what is that? She's talking about the morning. The morning, until the morning comes when the day breathes and the shadows, the night shadows flee away. And so until the morning, she requests him, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a stag on cleft mountains. All right, here we go. Hills of Bether. If you look uh, at a Bible commentary or if you look at maybe a geographical map of Israel and you look at for mountains of Bether, <laughs> there is none. There's no literal mountains of Bether. And so she's not referring to something that physically exists in the landscape of Israel. Let me lead you to this. Bether, or uh, Hebrew Bethar, uh, literally the verb means to separate. It means separation. And so what she's referring to here are her breasts. She says, until the morning comes, I want you to be like a gazelle or a young stag on my chest. And so that's in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. And she anticipates that. And what we're going to see in verses uh, 6 of chapter 3 for about a chapter and a half is uh, the consummation of that. Her anticipation will become consummation. And so we're going to see that next week. Finally, we're going to wrap up here. What we see there. This time period should be delightful. It should be deepening of trust. You should catch your foxes. You should develop oneness. And finally, you should defeat fears. Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3. Not only are there foxes that have to be dealt with, but there are fears that have to be overcome. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. We'll read this together, and then I'll, I'll explain it shortly. If we can move on. On my bed by night... I sought him who my soul loves. The very beginning of this gives us an indication. There's a shift in scene. What we see is that he uh, is out, was at her house and they were going to go away on a walk. Um, what we see is that he has left, I think, at this point, and she is back at her house. And notice, on my bed by night, I sought him who my soul loves. Most commentators believe, and I think they're right, this is a dream. She's talking about a dream that she's having. He has gone. They're not married yet. He left. And this is a dream that she's having because she sought him by night and she sought him on my bed. And so she says this, I sought him but found him not. Verse 2. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, notice her response, I held him and would not let him go until I I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of the one who conceived me. And so what we see here in verse five, we'll get to it in one second. What we see here is that I believe she's having a dream. And I think this dream, what we see is her deepest fears. That's what dreams often are, are they not? We have demonstrate our fears in our dreams. And here I think we see her, her deepest, darkest fear. And it's simply this, that one day he will leave her, that one day he will be gone. 
Or, I guess you could say that one day he might pass away, but I think it's likely it's the first. She, her deepest fear, as she articulated in this dream, is that he's just going to leave me. He's going to leave me. Uh, interestingly enough, as I think about the fears that Shelley and I had initially when we first got married and early on in our marriage, they were very similar to this. Shelley struggled a little bit and had some fears of me passing away. What would I do if, if, if you died? What would I do if I lost you? I, on the other hand, had fears of, what if you leave me? My fear was, you might find out who I really am and you might take off. <laughs> That's my fear. That's my insecurity. You might be unfaithful to me. You might leave me. And so I think what we have here, she's articulating that. And the point that I want to make as we wrap up is that couples, both to be married and then couples that are married, not only do we have to deal with foxes, but we have to, we have to defeat fears. We have to defeat our fears. And so what you need to ask yourself and your spouse is, not only what are our foxes, but what, are, what, are you, what do you fear? What are you afraid of? What's your deepest fear? What terrifies you? What do you dream of at night that you don't share with me? And so if you're single and you're dating, you're heading towards marriage, there's a whole list of possible fears, fears that you feel as you're heading towards marriage. The oh-so-common fear of commitment, right? Am I going to make this leap? Uh, fear, fear of a failed marriage. That's one that many people fear as they go into marriage. Insecurities. I had a ton of insecurities when I got married. Still do. Change of lifestyle. This is going to be a dramatic shift. I'm not going to eat cheeseburgers every night anymore and watch football with my friends. There's going to be a change of lifestyle. Fears of maybe your partner leaving you. Uh, fears of them discovering who you really are, which is, is one that I had. I guess my admonition to you is if you're dating and you're going, thinking towards marriage, you need to not ignore these fears. You need to consider them. You need to talk to your potential mate, if you will, about those and get them out in the open. Uh, for those of us who are married, I think we go into marriage with fears, uh, some of those fears, uh, and then we have other fears. And I think what happens is that fears can become foxes. You with me on that? Our fears can develop into foxes. And so if you fear in marriage that your partner might leave you, that they might go away, you could go one of two ways. You might be over, overbearing. You might be all in their business. You might be suspicious of their every move. You may want to know exactly where they are and get a GPS under their skin or something. You know, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Okay. Um, you might be fearful or you might go the other way. You might... Uh, you might uh, withdraw. You may not share things with them uh, because you're afraid of how they're going to react. You may avoid conflict. And so fears in marriage can become foxes. We're going to close with this. In verse 5, Solomon, I think it's Solomon here, pipes in. Uh, there are different people who think different things, but I think Solomon pipes in here. I, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, we've seen this before, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And I think he closes where we saw him closing last time, the idea of sexually, there's a time for love and it's not now. Um, love has to develop and when it's ready... When it's ready, when it's time, when it's ripe, we will get married. And what we're going to see next Sunday is a wedding. We're going to see a wedding scene, and we're going to see a honeymoon scene. Uh, it's going to be steamy. It's going to be interesting. You may have never read this section in your Bible, but does God care about sexuality? You bet he does. In fact, he gives us about a chapter and a half 
of what it's supposed to be. And so that's where we're going to be. Just FYI, uh, we will have kids' church. And so if you you know are uncomfortable with your kids being in here, there will be kids' church. John has been so gracious enough, uh, if you still are willing, uh, just to take some of our preteen agers. If you're comf- you know if you if you have older kids and you're like okay, I want to wait on this, John is going to take them out and be available as well. And so just want to give you a heads up on that. Um, the art of the art of engagement. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's so practical, that there are so many things that we can learn from it. And I pray, Father, now as we uh, just prepare to respond to you in song, I'm sure there are many things that are swirling around our mind. Father, for many of us, there is hurt and pain. Uh, Father, I pray that you would provide healing and grace and mercy and forgiveness and change. Uh, for those who uh, listen to this and they are aching uh, for whatever reason. For some of us, this is an encouraging thing uh, because we've, not, uh, we've, we've done okay on this by your grace. And so, uh, Father, for some of us, we're in the midst of a hard relationship and we need direction. I pray, Father, that you would use this sermon and, and your text, your text, uh, to speak into our hearts and into our lives on this issue that you are not silent on. Father, we, um, we recognize as we come to this that while we are made for relationships, uh, male and female, Ultimately, you have made us for a relationship with you. Ultimately, uh, the love of a husband, the sacrificial love of a husband points us towards Jesus. And the, the humble submission and respect and love of a wife points us towards how the church, how your people are supposed to react and respond to our loving bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for people in this room, if they are here and they are searching for fulfillment in any relationship, and it's not Jesus, Father, I pray that they would see that their search is in vain and that only he can be the great lover of their soul, the great bridegroom, to give them everything that they need, unconditional love and joy and acceptance. And that that happens when they come to the point where they realize that he paid for their sins, that he was risen from the dead as the son of God, and that they, though lost and sinful and worthy of hell, have a have forgiveness of sins and the promise of being a new person through faith in Jesus. I pray that they would come to know him. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.